Mark chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. Mark 9, and beginning at verse 2 is the uh, passage where we will be, but I want us to think about something for a moment, is noise. Noise. It is all around us. And it's something we've become so accustomed to that we often miss it when it's gone. Noise is such a regular part of our life that we don't even notice the noise in our life. But there's something I truly appreciate and I always make comment to is when the hydro goes out. (laughs) The hydro goes out and then it takes a moment for your ears to adjust and your brain to click. It's like, oh, this is quiet. You may have thought you were sitting in a silent room with nothing going on until the power goes out and you're like, this is quiet. There was so much noise. There's just noise, constant noise in the world. And so when it goes out, it is shockingly quiet. And, and perhaps uh, we don't uh, even think about the different types of noises that are all around us externally. But the noise in our lives is not limited to like background noises or the buzzing of electricity or distant traffic. Um, Noise comes from all different places. It comes in audio and visual uh, media, constant noise. We're bombarded, advertisements and and TV shows and, and quick flip, 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 this and that. That's noise that's constantly bombarding us or the busyness of the passing world. Or the fast-paced everything and everyone. It's all noise. It's noise. And it's plentiful in its volume and in its distraction ability. But you know that noise is not just from outside of us. That the suffocating of the noise is not just out there. But it is in our thoughts, in our dreams, in our regrets, in our temptations, in our lies, in our own heart and mind. There's noise constantly. Noise noise seems to be ever-present. And the problem comes is when that noise keeps us from rightly listening. When the noise is so distracting, when the noise is so uh, present that we are unable to listen rightly. The noise is so powerful. The noise is so distracting. It's so persuasive that it keeps us from listening rightly. In our passage this morning, there is a straightforward command. God the Father says to the disciples who were present, listen to him. Speaking of Jesus the Son, listen to him. So in our passage this morning, Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 2, I want to read for you this text and then we will focus in on that point. Mark 9 verse 2, hear God's words. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could ever bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen 
until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. There's this account of three disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John. Often when Jesus broke off, he would take Peter, James, and John with him. So Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with him. In Luke's account, it tells us they were going to pray. They're going up the mountain to pray. And here, this verse is just shocking because it it makes no sense to us. In verse 2, he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured. There was a diff- he appeared differently. His figure was different. In Luke's account, he says the appearance of his face was altered. He transfigured. He looked different. There was something about him, not just about his face, but about his clothes. They became intensely white, whiter than what you could bleach them. They were uh, glistening. They were so bright, so different than what they had seen. And this terrified the disciples. They were left dumbfounded. They did not know what to say or what to do. And there with them appeared Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses had appeared and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter, verse uh, 5 says, Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. He recognized the the goodness of this moment, though he was terrified, he was confused, he did not know what to say or what to do. He was beside himself, and yet he knew that it was good, it was right, it was interesting to say the least. So then Peter says, well, let's make tents. Let's make tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What's the point of the tents? Well, that's not the main point of the text. The point of the text is not the tents of what they might represent or might not represent, whether it was the tabernacle or God's dwelling or who knows what. It doesn't matter what the, the tents were about, what symbol they may or may not have. That's not the significant portion of the text. It was Jesus transfigured in, in glory of some sort, some majestic glory, a display of power that Peter would never, ever forget. Jesus being transfigured before them and the presence of Elijah and Moses has more to say than the reality of Peter's response, which was because he was confused. I I don't know what to do. Let me just make some tents. Lots of people can say what those symbols might mean, but Chrysostom, who was an early church father, about 400 AD, commented, and he he suggests, based on where Peter has just come from, right? Peter um, had just been rebuked by Jesus for trying to prevent the suffering that was to come. He had been rebuked. And so now he's in this experience of glory and majesty and, and beauty. There was, there was no reality of the suffering present. And so Chrysostom comments, he says, Peter likely wanted to settle down in the security of this temporary bliss and thus prevent going down to Jerusalem. Let's just slow down what Jesus has said. Let's slow down that suffering process. Let's slow down the plan. This was characteristic of what Peter may have done as he already had tried to do so. 
But what we need to see here is the, the, the contrast of glory and, and suffering. Because he had just been beginning speaking about his suffering. And now he's appearing in, in glory to these disciples. And in, he is transfigured and he is as spoken of by the Father through the, through the voice that he is pleased with him. And yet the message is of suffering still. The two are not exclusive to one another. Either you have a, a glorious Jesus or a suffering Jesus. They're both. And they cannot be neglected one for the other. The readers must see that the suffering of Jesus is not incompatible with the glory of Jesus. They are one together. But Peter stands there with the, the other disciples terrified. What is he terrified by? Is he terrified by the appearance of Jesus? The transfiguring of his face, the glistening of his clothes? Is he terrified by the presence of two dead men, Elijah and Moses, and men from different times? Is he terrified by that? Is he terrified by the glory? By the, the glory that was there? Because the very next verse, after it says he was terrified in verse 6, verse 7 says, and a cloud overshadowed them. So was it bright or was it dark? We know Jesus was glistening. He was shining as a light. And here it's a cloud overshadowed them. Perhaps it was terrifying in that sense. The darkness of the moment. The, the confusion of what was taking place before them. And as this cloud overshadowed them in verse 7, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. My son. The father. The creator of all things. This is my son. They had just been declaring him as the son. And he says, listen to him. In Matthew's account of this story, he says, while Jesus was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So Matthew's account gives us the reality of what were they terrified by? It wasn't by a cloud. It wasn't by the presence of Elijah and Moses. It wasn't by Jesus even being transfigured in some miraculous way. They fell on their faces and were terrified at the voice. At the voice of God the Father. In the midst of this glorious moment, they were terrified. But in Matthew's account, in verse 7 of Matthew 17, it says, But Jesus came, and he touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Have no fear. There's no need to fear the Father. There's no need to fear this moment or what you've experienced or what you have seen. There's no need to fear what I'm about to do. There's no need to fear this moment of bliss disappearing for exchanging it for suffering. There's no need to fear and back in Mark here in verse 8, suddenly they looked around and there was no longer anyone with them but just Jesus. It's almost as like they snapped out of it. So then verse 9 tells us, and they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one. Did that include the nine other disciples? Tell no one what they had seen until then he gives them a time. You will be allowed to tell them. You'll be allowed to tell them and everyone else. He says, when the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
So, verse 10 says, they kept this matter to themselves. They obeyed. They kept this matter to themselves, but they were questioning in their hearts what rising from the dead might mean. They still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. Jesus had already told them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And they still, these three were questioning, what might that mean? And maybe they were questioning that to figure out, well, when will that be? We want to tell others what we have seen. But they questioned in their hearts what rising from the dead might mean. And it wasn't that the resurrection was a strange concept. Resurrection was not a foreign idea. Even Herod had thought about resurrection, right? When he was, um, uh, when people were asking who was Jesus, Herod was convinced that it was John the Baptist who had resurrected. So even those who didn't believe in God understood the concept of a resurrection. So it wasn't that they were wondering, what does he mean rising from the dead? I don't get it. It wasn't that concept, but instead they were likely thinking, what does that mean for Jesus? What does that mean for us and when we can share what we have seen? But then they go on to ask about their tradition and what they knew, what they'd heard, what they grew up on. Verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? It's a good question, especially considering they've just seen Elijah and they, they know that if the Messiah is to come, Elijah has to come first. That's what was said in the Old Testament. Elijah would come first to prepare a way for the Lord. That was his role to come, to prepare a way for the Messiah. So they are asking, why do the scribes say that? Is it just the scribes that say that? And then uh, verse 12, Jesus responds to them. He says, Elijah does come to restore all things. And how is it written? So he's pointing back. How is it written? And he goes, it's not just about Elijah. He says, don't just focus on Elijah coming to restore all things. And you're thinking that's just bliss. And you're thinking that's just good. Because if you do, then you're going to miss who Elijah is. He says, yes, Elijah does come to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt Verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. And Mark leaves that up to our interpretation, but the other gospel accounts tells us, like, clearly that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord. He was the personification of the Elijah who was to come to prepare a way, to begin to restore all things, call people to repentance, to come back to God, to come back to God's way. That was Elijah's job through John the Baptist. So he says, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, including a head on a platter. But he focused there, not just on Elijah's restoration and the beauty and the, the glory of things, the bliss, but the suffering that was yet mixed in. The Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. It's incredible to think of all the parallels between uh, this, in this passage and what we have in parallel to the gospel accounts in other places and, and even the hill, or um, Old Testament analogies as well. Two commenters helpfully note some of the parallels and contrasts. Here are some of them in this passage. First, the glory revealed on the mountain is a private epiphany. 
while the suffering of the cross is a public spectacle. So the glory is this private, small thing, but the suffering is public. Or on one hand, Jesus is surrounded on the mountain by two prophets of old, Moses and Elijah. But on Golgotha, he's surrounded by two thieves, two criminals. On the mountain, Jesus' garments glisten with his glory. On Golgotha, they take his garments from him, meaning humiliation and shame. So glory and shame. A divine voice from the cloud announces that Jesus is the Son of God. And one of his executioners, a Roman centurion, acclaims he is the Son of God after his death. In both scenes, someone raises the question of Elijah. Coming down the mountain, Jesus informs the disciples that Elijah has already come, and they did to him as they pleased. And when Jesus hangs on the cross in torment, the bystanders taunt him with one last jive. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. The reader will see that all what we have here is beautiful contrast, but it shows us that there is a mix of not just one or the other glory or shame. But here there is no deliverance until the end of the age, and only a few will discern the glory of God manifest at Golgotha. It's not just glory on the mountain. It's glory at the cross. As we look at this passage, and then we think back to uh, really what we're observing, it's interesting because we consider which sense is most active here. Which sense is most engaged here? It is, of course, sight. It is sight that is most engaged and most active here. This passage is so descriptive of what can be seen by Peter, James, and John. And even Jesus, in verse 9, it says, When they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. It was so engaged, this passage, in the eyes and the sight and what had been seen But from there, and and maybe it's perhaps because we don't know, did Peter not know what they were talking about? Had he not understood what they were talking about? Well, he was close enough to be able to chime in and say to Jesus, why don't I build you some tents? So he was nearby. But uh, in Luke's account, he says that Jesus, when he appeared in glory, he spoke of his departure, which was he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So he was... Luke's account says that he was speaking of his departure, but Matthew and uh, Mark do not say that. They just suggest that really it was just Peter was observing with his eyes, and in a daze anyways, he was confused and terrified. But all the focus was on what they had seen, and Jesus says, don't tell others what you have seen, but yet what they had seen was the foundation for everything else. It was the foundation for everything else. But the voice that came from the cloud, the Father He said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He didn't say look to him. He said, listen to him. Listen. Now you know if you've ever tried to talk to children or your spouse or give constructive criticism that there is a difference between someone hearing you and listening to you. There's a big difference between audio passing through one ear and someone actually listening. And what often stops our listening Noise. Distraction. Distraction in your own brain. Your your thoughts are somewhere else. Distraction in the palm of your hands. Distraction on TV. 
The noise often is what hinders you from listening. And so the problem is we often hear much of what God has spoken to us through his word. Even as you read, and I find this myself, I will read and I will hear these words on a page. But then I stop and I go, did I even listen to that? Like, Did I even listen? I was reading it, but did I even listen to what I just said? 90% of the time, the answer is no. I was so bogged down by noise. It, the noise of my own heart. A to-do list that pops up. I don't, I don't know if that's you when you're reading or praying and to-dos lists start coming around or you think about so-and-so. Sure, we're supposed to pray for those things, but they're not supposed to distract us from what we were doing. We have a hard time listening. But there is power in listening to Him. It is, it is only when we listen to Christ, not just see Him, but listen to Him as He says, the very first command that Jesus gives in this Gospel account in Mark is repent and believe the Gospel. How many people hear those kind of words, but don't listen. And it takes listening to apply to our lives. If we're to live anything like Jesus, we need not only see him and hear him, but listen in our hearts to him, obey him, follow him, and think precisely in this context. Peter often wasn't listening. Jesus was talking about this is how it needs to be. There needs to be suffering. Peter wasn't listening. All he was hearing was what he wanted to hear. My friend's going to go. He wasn't listening to what God has said. And so God billows out this command, listen to him. So Jesus is going to go on from this time, speaking more and more of his suffering, more and more of not just the shame that will be, but the glory that will be at the cross for him. It's so interesting because if you're just watching, it looks like shame. If you're watching, it looks like defeat. If you're watching, it looks like he has lost. But if you've listened, you know that this is glory. If you've listened, you know that this is victory. Only if you've listened is this something to celebrate. And so listen to him was the command for Peter. And listen to him is the command for us. Listen to Jesus speak of his suffering and his glory as one, not as two distinct things. And think about that as in the Christian life. Oftentimes we try to separate the good from the bad, the, the great days from the, the trying days. Well, can't one be the same? As we discussed in, uh, in many times before, is through our trials comes growth, comes the purification of our souls. Through that suffering comes glory, comes goodness, comes our Christ-likeness. Peter mentions this account later in his life as he wrote his letter in 2 Peter about such a transformative time of what he had witnessed with his eyes, but then what he actually had learned to listen to. Peter says in, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 16 and 18, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the God the Father, the voice was borne to him by a majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, and we were with him on that holy mountain. This experience transformed Peter. 
It began a switch in Peter's heart. It began for him to have such a focus to pay attention, not to the noise, but to Christ. Ultimately, as we read Scripture, as we hear Scripture preached or read to us, we ought to be faithful to that original context. We don't get to pick and choose what we like. Let's talk about the colors. Let's talk about the light. Let's talk about his face. But here, we are presented with the truth that this passage is about glory and shame together. This passage is about suffering and the significance of Jesus reigning together. We are not to overemphasize or underemphasize one or the other. The two go hand in hand. The suffering of the Messiah will be far greater than imagined. But so will his glory. This passage invites the hearer to reflect on how weakness and humiliation go with power and glory, but only if we listen. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, there's this command, and it says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let me repeat that, Hebrews 2, 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's the very first verse of Hebrews chapter 2. All of Hebrews 1 has no commands in it. All it has is a display of Jesus. And then it says we must pay close attention to what we've heard. Not just what we've seen, what we've experienced. is What we've seen allows us to say, I need to put the noise down. I'm trying to look at the thing. Right? I don't know if you've ever seen like a TV across the way and you go, I need to try to zoom in. Or someone talking, you're like trying to read their lips so you can hear them right? across the noise of a room. That's what it is. It's like God is giving us things to see. The majesty of Christ, the power of Christ, not only in, in the gospel, but in our own lives and the lives of those around us. He gives us things to see so that we may go, I need to tune in and I need to listen. What is this trying to speak to me? What is God saying to me? In Hebrews chapter 1, before this command comes to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, is this display of Jesus. And precisely, here's what the very first verse says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then it says, pay close attention to what you have heard. What you've heard. But the sight is what draws us to go, this is Jesus by whom God speaks. This is God in all of his glory. I need to listen. The, the, the thing is this. Noise is not the enemy. The love of noise is the enemy. It's when you crave that noise, when you pursue that noise, when God wants you to be still and know that he is God. He wants you to get quiet with him. And the practice of Christian meditation is not empty your mind and hear nothing and have hums and haws. Christian meditation is to empty your mind of the noise so you can focus on listening to God. 
Christian meditation is this practice of paying close attention to what we've heard. Noise is not the enemy, but the love of noise is. There's much good noise. Lots of good things you can watch and listen to and hear. Lots of good people you can always be in constant conversation with. Good thoughts in our hearts. Good reminders in our heads. The problem is when we love that noise more than we love listening to him. The one thing that John John Piper says, one thing that makes listening so hard is that we don't want to listen. We don't want to. It's hard because we don't want to. It's not hard to listen. We listen to things all day long. We're constantly listening. We're listening to the noise outside, but inside. We're always listening, but what are we listening to? So we have to be diligent to be in control, right? Be in control of what you're listening to. What is it that's actually um, influencing your mind and your heart all day long? What is it you listen to? Here our passage gives us the command, listen to him. How do we do that? How do we listen to him? Of course, through his word. Because it says he spoke by his son. Listen through his word. Listen to other believers. Listen to them tell their stories, share their struggles, share their prayer requests. Listen, and you can be listening for how Christ is at work in them, or what Christ wants to do with them or for them. Listen to him. Listen to him prompt you as you have a, um, a feeling that you ought to do what is right instead of what is wrong. Listen to him. The noise is not wrong. It's only wrong when we love it more than listening to him. Let's strive then to obey this command, this billowing command after all that they had seen, all that we have seen and witnessed in Christ in the world and in our lives. Let us use that to draw us to go, I need to listen in. I need to listen to him. Let's pray for that. Oh God, you know more than we do the noise that surrounds us the distractions that are available to us at all times, not just from outside, but in our own hearts, God. And we pray that you would help us um, to not just try to get rid of the noise for the sake of noise, but instead that you would help us to, to latch on to the things that we want to value most. We want Christ. We want to hear of the goodness of the gospel, that our sins can be forgiven in him when we trust in him. And that we would know that message every day. We would not be so distracted by um, grief in our own hearts or hatred of sin in our own hearts or sorrow in our hearts. But instead we would hear you tell us that we can be forgiven because Christ has accomplished what he said he would do. Help us to listen to him. That we would repent, that we would turn from our sins and we would trust him over and over. Not just that we need to do it day in and day out, but instead that we would trust you more because today we lack trust and tomorrow we lack trust. And so we need your help to trust. And the way we're going to do that is by seeing you and listening. Would you help us to listen? Would you help us to be obedient as we listen so you might get the glory from all of our lives? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.